Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Once again, you've got both of us, Mike and Sean, and you're welcome. All right. Tonight is going to be what is planned to be the first of a three-part series of medical operations planning. Tonight's episode, we're going to talk just some of the basic mission planning stuff. So this is not the definitive source for your medical mission planning needs. Kind of give you a general overview, things to consider. Uh, There are some pretty good books that are out there. There's some Probably still some online courses I know that float around that talk about this stuff. So if you need more of this info, you can get a hold of us. We can make some recommendations or maybe have something available to you in your local area. With that, a lot of ways to accomplish this. Don't hate us because this is just one approach. Again, just one approach. If you have something that works for you, well, then use it. Secondly, this is being presented from the medic's perspective. This is the medic in support of an operation. This is not you as trip, expedition, event, whatever it is, leader making your plans. This is purely the medic's mindset and how they or may look at supporting operations. All right, so with that, we're going to start off. First thing, we get into our planning, you got to select your team. Who are you bringing with you? Is it just going to be you? Are you going to need multiple medics or other medical personnel varying levels and capabilities? Is there actually going to be a physician or a PA or something else assigned? Or will you be the highest ranking, if you will, or qualified certified person for this particular event? After you've kind of started thinking about your team, you need to understand part of the selection is, are these going to be single role or multi-role medics? And What we mean by that is a single role is somebody who is just only there to provide medical support. Doesn't matter what the rest of the mission is, what the rest of the participants are doing. You are there just to do medicine and treat people who come ill or injured. If you're a multi-role person, that means medicine is just one of those things that you are also doing. It might be a secondary duty, might be a primary. You have to work that out. An example of this would be sometimes a lot of expeditions or event support things. The medics are either teaching things, helping to lead or guide events. And then if somebody should get injured, then they also put on their other hat and take over and provide the medical care as necessary. So you got to pick your team based on those criteria. Just having a good medic is great, but if you're also expected to show people how to use ropes or safely traverse crevasse-ridden glaciers, you're going to need a different skill set. You're going to have to pick different team people to support that. All right. I think we've pretty much covered the... Some examples there. Other examples could be high-risk training events. You know, you might have maybe one or two medical personnel who are just supervising and watching the training occur, and maybe you have another medic or two that are embedded within the training teams. Right. So your overall mission is going to help determine which type of medic you're going to need in that situation. The next one is one of my favorites because it ruffles the feathers of a lot of folks that are out there. You need to choose your team wisely, and everybody immediately is going, well, yeah, duh, jackass. You got to pick the right guys, right? You got to remember, not everybody's suited for all the different types of operations. Don't just select your friends. 
your favorite partners, et cetera, to bring out with you on some expedition or event that you've been hired onto or you're volunteering to support, whatever it might be. They have to possess the needed skills, knowledge, experience to properly support the event, whatever that might be. And my favorite, being a good guy does not always provide the needed level of support, right? There's a lot of people out there that are, ah, oh, yeah, he's not the best medic, but he's a really good guy. You know, it'd be a lot of fun for him to come out here and hang out with us and do this, whatever. It's like, cool. Tim couldn't save him. a life to save his ass, but it turns out that he's a nice guy to hang out with around the campfire. Yeah, like, yeah, people base a lot of team selection on who they want to hang out and drink beers with, not who they want to have providing care to injured people. Because sometimes those people are like me or Mike. We're a little gruff and uh, irritating to some. Yeah, we're not fun to hang out with at the campfire, but we do know how to sort of get no. on occasionally. I'm marginal at best, right? So yeah, don't just pick guys because they're your favorites, they're your friends. You've got to actually take the time to consider who really should be going out with you to support this operation. Tied into that, are there any fitness or health requirements, even for your medics, right? So are you going to be doing some high altitude work? Do they need to have some level of mountaineering experience? Do they need to be at a certain fitness level to provide good, competent support to participants of whatever this event is? Now, if you're supporting, we'll say, one of these ultra-endurance races, do you need to be able to complete the ultra-endurance race yourself? No, but if it requires you to hike you and your kit and maybe some other support equipment and help somebody else and gain access to a person, then you need to be able to do that. Your fitness has to reflect. You can't just be that 300-pound medic who's been on a truck for 15 years and go, hey, you're going uphill mile and a half that way. Follow the signs. Like, Whoa, brother, I don't even know these boots will zip all the way up. Okay, you got to pick the guys that are right <laughs> for the stuff. Same with health requirements. I've seen this in certain operations I've supported many years ago in the past. I haven't done these in a very long time. But you generally as the medic can't have any significant health issues going into these things with either, right? If you are a good diabetics out there that control their stuff and do fine with their meds. But if you're one of those people that's borderline, doesn't take care of your stuff, you're not compliant with your meds, you have serious cardiac issues, you're probably not the correct candidate to support certain things. Not say it can't be done, but it is a consideration that needs to be brought up. And lastly, initial gear selection should kind of go into this. When I talk gear, I'm talking medical gear. This is not just individual personalized gear, although that should kind of start to play into this as you're selecting people and whatever your mission is, but it's your medical gear. Do you need full service cardiac monitors? Are you, yeah, are you going to have the ability to take or have Lifeback 15s or a Zoll brought in? Or do you need more of them? Do you have batteries? Do you have an ability to charge said device? Are there other devices you might need, like portable ultrasounds, et cetera, that are out there then technology wise? And then litters, Stokes baskets, wheels for Stokes, et cetera. Other medical considerations, just, yeah, like trucks, UTVs, ATVs. Mules, donkeys, carts. Yeah. yeah, exactly, right? Those things that could actually help you in the medical care, not just necessarily the care, but the access to and evacuation of people to better places for medicine. All right, and that's that's your initial piece, your team selection. Yeah. Mike's going to talk to us a little bit about some mission analysis. Yeah, let's analyze our mission. So... There's actually a lot of mission analyses that goes into street medicine. There's, depending on the size of an agency, a bunch of people that, you know, they typically are coordinated in, or they're correlated in some way, manner, shape, or form with dispatch folks. But this is something that traditional EMS folks don't see a lot of. 
elevating the ranks of our system where you've been around a long time and you've helped to build these things. But believe it or not, mission analysis and knowing what the operations plan looks like is actually a key component of pretty much any EMS system. It's just that not something that is done by the individual provider in a traditional urban system. This is something that we have to make sure we handle if we're doing expedition or extended care medicine or any of those sorts of those things. So this is not uncommon. It's just not commonly done by the individual, unless it is a small team. First and foremost, you have to understand your objective. In most urban 911 response systems, the objective is to provide emergency medical care in a timely <laughs> manner to the residents of a given jurisdiction, right? That would actually be like the framework for the language that would be used in an operational objective for an urban 911 system, right? Timely care. Believe it or not, most systems actually have metrics and measures they pursue. Like, you know, they want to be out the door within three minutes or volunteer systems want to be responding within eight minutes on a run from home system, whatever the metric is, right? Same sort of things for our expeditionary or mission planning for whatever we're doing in a non-traditional setting. So what's our objective? Do we want to be able to provide care for somebody with a ALS emergency or a minor ALS emergency for four days, six days, two days? Do we want to be able to provide cardiac, what I'll call ACLS level care if somebody does a cardiac event in a timely manner, right? Uh, if you're doing something like race support, your objective may be to be able to get a defibrillator to someone that had a cardiac event in a certain amount of time. That could be an operational objective. It's going to vary quite a bit depending on what your mission set is. If you're doing more traditional mountaineering expeditionary medicine, you probably want to have objectives and plans for warming and reheating or, or uh, managing. You may not be super focused on the cardiac anomaly situation. It all kind of depends on your mission. Second, you're going to need to communicate. Traditionally, this is done with radios, cell phones, that sort of thing. This may also include written communication, signaling, land-to-air communications, having radios that are capable of speaking to aircraft, cell phones, email, information that needs to be conveyed in a timely manner, plan to do it. Often in an expeditionary model, there's also going to be backups to the problem, right? Sat phones, spot devices, things like that. But you have to have a plan for communication. You can't just be like, oh, I'm going off into the woods, man. I'll just use my cell phone. It'll work forever. I think Sean just mentioned earlier, the equipment that you bring that includes the need for power and batteries needs a recharging plan, a power management plan as well. Navigation. It's one thing to know where you think you're going. It's a whole other thing to actually have tools to get somewhere else if it turns out you ended up in the wrong spot. What I mean by that is going into being the person that's responsible for a number of people and their care requires a more detailed analysis of where you're going and maybe even down to the point of pre-planning, right? From this point to this point, we know that our extrication for an injured individual with a, let's say we're doing a, a race of some sort, right? At, between these points in the, in the course, we're going to have to extricate using the side road or whatever the case may be. Maps, I mean, this is going to date me. I'm going to sound like an old guy, but I'm actually really into still having paper maps. They're useful, believe it or not. As much as I like GPS and phones and all the things, like having a backup paper map, super important. So that could also be part of your objective planning and, and skill set uh, requirements. If you need to have people that are capable of using traditional land navigation skills with a map and compass, you probably mm -hmm. want to make sure they have that skill set before you add them to your team. Known medical conditions, both on site, and in the local area, 
we're going to talk about that a bit, but you need to understand who you're providing care for and the aspects of the local area, right? Where are the hospitals, where are the care facilities, what air assets are available to you? Can you, can you get like, no kidding, like our horses available to carry somebody that is unable to walk? We'll talk about that a little bit. But then finally, general security concerns, right? Even if we're not going to a place that has a physical security requirement, and that very well could be a thing, you may need to manage that. Physical security could be part of the the mission planning you have to plan for. But let's say it's not. Medical equipment in general is typically not cheap, and it is typically not, not easily replaced in an austere environment or a, a more specialized environment. So you need to make sure that you're protecting it, right? Equipment should be placed in appropriate storage containers. If you're shipping equipment, you're shipping cargo, flying cargo. Uh, I've been involved in things where you just have to make sure you, your packet that's going to get inserted out of the side of a helicopter at about 10 feet up above the ground when you get to the <laughs> top of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, life packs are durable, but if you're bringing a life pack, you probably don't want to just yard a life pack out the door of a helicopter and be like, oh, hope it made it. Um, <laughs> Oh, it'll make it. So Functionality is a different. It'll concern. make it. It just may not be very useful, right? These are all things you need to need to consider, right? Also, you need to have a plan for having people around your equipment if you're in a environment that you can't control all the folks coming in and out, right? Last thing you want is to bring all this expensive cool guy stuff and then have people walk off with it. Like that wouldn't be cool. So, again, as I mentioned, physical security can be a concern, but just basic security, right? Most often thieves are thwarted by simply not being given an opportunity to be a thief. That may not be the place where you know, you're going to need armed personnel providing protection, but don't leave expensive equipment sitting around for people to grab. All right. I feel like I've labored or I've belabored that one enough. Let's talk a little bit more about administrative and logistics requirements. How long are you going to be there? How long are you going to be there doing this thing? And then what is your buffer time beyond that? It's pretty easy for a race support environment to say, we are going to be here from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m. And if things go really off the rails, we'll have a buffer until midnight. It's a totally different thing if you're doing like an expedition to a mountain somewhere and you plan to be there for 10 days, but you got to have kind of be ready for contingencies around weather. Like you could get stuck there longer. You may have to leave sooner. You really need to kind of understand your schedule if you know it. And make plans for the unexpected, depending on the environment. I realize that sounds like, what was that saying from the, the kids used to say in the 90s? No doy. <laughs> like, of course, if I'm going up a mountain, Mike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have plans in case I get stuck. But you'd be surprised at the number of things that people don't plan for contingencies. Because it isn't, it isn't the big bang, right? It's, I mean, we, Sean and I see it all the time. People go hiking and they're like, oh, I wasn't expecting to have been out after dark. Well, it turns out that like when you don't hike as well as you thought you did and it takes longer than you had planned, it gets dark. The sun does go down every day. Yeah. Um, so make a plan. Understand the scope and then plan appropriately. So if you're doing a 10-day expedition, maybe you need to have contingency expectations to have to provide some supplemental food for two or three days for your entire crew because they might be there longer than planned. They didn't come prepared. Minimum gear, right? Who's providing what? There's a plethora of different ways to handle the situation. But in general, there's, in most expeditionary type things, there's a whole team planning process. But just in the medical gear alone, if there's a few of you providers, do you really need to bring five stethoscopes if there's five paramedics? Probably not. But 
the age-old ounces equals pounds mantra, you should be planning for that. You need enough equipment as a team to treat the injuries you believe you will be expected to handle, plus some, and don't go ham on your personal gear if you don't have to. (laughs) If you do have to, you probably need to get into a deeper conversation with your logistics planning section, because if you're if you're coming prepared for in case other people didn't, then you're probably bringing too much stuff. But it is something you have to think about, right? What's the minimum gear I'm going to need? What's the minimum team equipment we're going to require? And then what do I need personally? Like I'm notorious for having three or four headlamps with me. I don't need three or four headlamps, but I do that because inevitably somebody else is going to need a headlamp. And I want to have at least one and a backup, if not two. That's an example of my experience teaching me that I should carry more than a headlamp. Uh, Lodging, right? Where are you going to sleep? Are you sleeping in a hammock? Are you sleeping in a hotel? Are you sleeping in a tent? Are you sleeping in Bob's house? Are you sleeping in the back of your pickup truck? Having a plan around managing rest is important. It's, again, seems pretty self-explanatory, but it's not the when things go right that you have to be ready for. It's when you need to potentially provide lodging or a place for your patient to remain comfortable. Uh, a lot of folks don't think about that. Like, do I have the equipment necessary that if I have to hold up here for two days waiting for additional help, am I able to keep myself and my patient relatively comfortable and you know off the ground or out of the water or out of the mouth of a badger, whatever the case may be? <laughs> um, Goddamn badgers. Yeah, well, I mean, we've had some experience with that too. So, yeah. I'm going to say the words food and water. And if you don't understand at this point that food and water are a basic human sustenance requirement, like let's go back to kindergarten. But you are responsible, especially if you're treating a patient that is injured, to make sure that they're getting some decent nutrition, right? Do not, do not just bank on, well, they'll just keep eating whatever, especially if they, I don't know why this would happen, but they break their jaw. So make plans for food and water. I'm going to just leave it at that. And then key leadership principles are actually really important and often missed. What's your comms plan? What's your secondary plan? What's your tertiary plan? What are your methods for ensuring that if somebody in the leadership team gets hurt, that you can adjust accordingly? What's the saying? Nature abhors a vacuum. Mm -hmm. That is never more true than when it turns out that you don't have a plan of succession or a plan for who's going to handle stuff. And the guy that was handling stuff is the one that gets hurt. Yeah. So you need to have a plan for key leadership and what's going to happen if your key personnel are not able to perform their planned function in the organization of the mission. Yeah. And I would say part of that too is making sure that people know how to get a hold of and communicate to these key leaders. So like as you Mm -hmm. as the as the medic guy, right? Like who's in charge of this expedition or operation? How do I get a hold of them and tell them I've got a pretty significant thing going on, right? Who do I talk to? And by what means? That's I think that's a good key piece a lot of people miss. It's like you'll get your ops plan. It's like Bob Johnson here. He's going to be the well, for lack of a better term, we'll call it the incident commander. Just because I keep defaulting to current job stuff, right? Does my incident commander need the direct report from me, or is there an interim, somebody in between, right? So again, depending on what you're supporting and the size of that operation, you could have an interim operations chief who will funnel some of this information, like you'll report to him, and then he will make sure that whoever's in charge of the overall operation, whether it's some sort of, we'll call it a tactical type support operation, expedition, et cetera, or you're just 
you, you might be going just to Africa with a Christian ministry team who are wanting to do good works in an orphanage, but they've contracted out to provide some basic medical services primarily for them and then maybe for the villagers, right? So who do you talk to about what and for what reasons? Like maybe certain things at a certain level, you don't have to go to leadership and other times you do. So yeah, so have a plan for who you talk to and get stuff right? done in a timely manner. And, and, know, and know who you should talk to, you know, just yeah. Mike's in charge. Always talk to Mike. Mike doesn't need to hear from everybody, right? So but that's a, that's a whole nother planning consideration that we're not going to discuss today. All right. So unless you get something else, Mike. No, those... hit it. All right. So next we're going to talk about your detailed medical analysis and your info gathering, right? This is where you primarily is, and we'll assume you're the, the lead medical guy, you're part of the medical team, and you might be assigned a section to this, right? So if you're, you're detailed medical planning, big ones, availability of local resources, whether that's operating within the United States, foreign countries, et cetera. If it's not your local jurisdiction, you're already familiar with the hospitals, the routes to the hospitals and what their capabilities are, you need to learn what those are, right? So are there any actual hospitals in my area? Yes or no? Okay, there are hospitals. Cool. What are their capabilities? Because as most, well, depending on where you've been working, right? If you've worked in a few different places as an EMS provider, you'll know that not all hospitals are created the same. There are those very local, small critical access hospitals that are just a step up from going to an urgent care type clinic, all the way up to your level one trauma hospitals that are, you know, comprehensive stroke centers, other PCI capable STEMI centers, et cetera. What's available to you? What can they provide? Right. So if, if you hit somebody with a basic fracture and you know that that's might be outside what this local hospital can do for you, where are you going to take your, your patient? So you got to know what's there. How do you access them? Right. So if it's local in the U.S., it's pretty, pretty easy to figure that one out. A lot of times if you're operating or within, say, your own home country, right, you'll do the initial stabilization, initial movement of patient to most likely a predetermined rendezvous area where local emergency services will come with an ambulance, ground or air, and pick up your patient. You'll do your handover and off they go. You might be operating kind of alone and unafraid in an underdeveloped nation where you and your team are responsible for loading your patient into the back of a UTV, from UTV to your camp, to the back of a truck, and from the truck down 20 miles of bad road to get to this little local hospital that actually has a doctor. You need to know how to access these places. How do you call them? Do they use radios? Do they use telephone? Do you have those phone numbers? Do you have those radio frequencies? Are those radio frequencies compatible with the types of radios you have with you in whatever your team brings? That's kind of an important thing to know. Is it possible to get a radio from one of these local places for use? Maybe, maybe not. Is there a point of contact like at these hospitals to you for you to do your liaison work with? So there's going to be a lot of initial phone calls and emails going out trying to find the right person to let them know, hey, I'm supporting this expedition, this race, this whatever your event might be. I'm here doing this thing. We're here during these days. You're going to be the closest hospital to me. What do I need to do to be able to bring a patient to you? Figure that out. And we'll go into some of this stuff in more detail in the next episode. So we're not going to get too deep right now. And then other mission coordination is necessary, like aviation assets, ground transport assets, et cetera. Any, uh, are there meds you have to get purchased in country? Were you unable to fly with, say, narcotics? due to international travel regulations into these countries. 
you can come with some of your generic medications. I your, always come with narcotics, dog. <laughs> your uh, <laughs> your antibiotics and some other things. But because maybe this country's their regulations won't allow you to import narcotics. So you have to try and procure them in country. Is there a plan to do so? And is this plan legal? The last thing you want to do is be caught purchasing narcotics on the black market, thinking you're doing the right thing, and then find yourself in a very strange country's very poorly run jail, right? Not what you want to be doing. What are your major... Good time. Yeah, I've read stories. I don't want to be a part of them. All right, that's fair. I've heard stories of support teams going into countries like fully supported, like medical disaster response teams who have had like their narcotics confiscated at points of entry. Oh, yeah. Part of it is because those guys are now taking them and selling them on the black market and too, oh, for because sure. they didn't, they missed, you know, three signatures or one signature on form 92A. So mm-hmm. a lot of crazy stuff going on there. All right. Where are we at? Again, local medical concerns. So this is again, Primarily applicable if you're traveling outside of your local area, but what is what is the active epidemiology, right? The different diseases, the viruses, the, the nasty things that are out there that may cause you issues as the medical provider. So obviously, if you're traveling from the U.S. to foreign countries, they have a lot of different viruses and disease things that we simply don't have here in the U.S., or at least not prevalent enough for it to be a general concern for most providers. Right. So you need to understand what those are. How do you get them? Right. Is this are these mosquito borne vector diseases, things like that. Right. You need to understand how they're there. Along with that, the local wildlife. A lot of people kind of take this one for granted. But if you're doing some sort of expeditionary support or mission support, whatever it might be, know what the local wildlife is. Snakes, spiders, crocodiles, the mosquitoes. Again, right. You want to know what those vectors are that are going to cause potential issues for you and We'll call them clients and other team members. And this is pretty serious. Like if you've ever been in some of these other countries, like knowing what these things are is is actually very important. Like, okay, at night, don't go out of this section of the camp because these things are out there. People laugh, go, ah, ha, ha, ha. And next thing you know, somebody's being drug away by a croc. Like these things happen. Don't let that happen. Be aware of them. Don't get eaten by a crocodile. It's bad. Yeah, I was... <laughs> Give you an Australia story one day, but that was a pretty good, strong reminder. Me and a friend, we we're going to deviate off this actual running path towards the beach. And they're like, yeah, no, don't do that. The crocs will take you. And it's like, oh, for reals? Yeah, for reals. Okay, noted. All right. So signs everywhere. So it was definitely a, a thing. And it was one of those, uh, it's just a general warning, right? It was not. Lastly, on this section, your environmentals, right? Weather conditions, if at all possible, understand what the weather's going to be like. Why? Well, is it going to be hot, wet, hot, dry? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be a combination of all of the above? Are you going to have some pretty good temps during the day and they're going to just plummet during the night? That's going to help you plan some of your team equipment, right? Do we need to be able to treat hyperthermia and hypothermia? Or are we going to be predominantly looking at hypothermia, predominantly hyperthermia? Some of the resources that go with those to do them well are not as mm-hmm. easily packed into certain austere environments, right? Not everybody's going to be able to get a big ice bath set up in the Sahara in August, right? But know what your environmental go to the Sahara in August, dude. <laughs> it's hot. Stay I don't want to. Yeah, Africa hot's a phrase for a reason. Yeah. So know your environmental conditions, altitude, right? Are you going to be working at altitude? If you do, or you are, make sure you brush up on all your relevant altitude illnesses. Make sure you're up to date with current diagnoses, treatment modalities, etc. Yeah, that's 
going to play a factor for probably a, at least a few of the people that are coming with you. Not everybody's going to be acclimated or used to operating at altitude. If you were to take me to altitude now, give me a day, I'll probably be all right. But I haven't been to significant altitude in quite a while now, right? So that's going to be a big one to think about. And again, plants. If you're walking out into the woods to take care of some business because you're in a very remote area, what plants should you avoid making contact with, right? <laughs> poison ivy, poison oak. These are things we think about here in the U.S. and those are relatively benign compared to some plants across the globe. Some can actually make your patients very, very sick, even with mild contact based on their defensive mechanisms so that other animals don't eat them. So just know what they are. And part of this will come into some stuff Mike's going to talk about later, but make sure everybody else knows what all these things are too. Not just you and your medical team, but everybody needs to be familiar, right? Yeah, don't be ready to treat. Like Bob ran into plant X that has caused allergic reaction. Like make sure Bob knows not to touch the damn plant. Yeah, yeah. some things can't be avoided, but many things can. You know, like with the mantra, all snakes are are poisonous, don't touch the snake. Just yeah. even if you know for a fact it's not, let's just be on the safe side and don't let the snake bite you, poisonous or not. It'll just that's prevent. a harken back to previous episodes, Sean. But I believe that falls on the fuck around and find out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Right? And so does so does uh, using unknown leaves to take care of business in the woods. Yeah, like that seems like a really bad plan. Use a sock okay. if you have to. Don't grab random leaves. All right, whatever, Mike. Uh, give us some general med support stuff. I would love to. All right. So first off, bring the appropriate equipment necessary to treat the environment. Well, how do we know what is going to be appropriate for the environment? There's really two aspects. One, do a little research on your environment. But two, the other thing we can really control for that we don't think about is proper screening and understanding the medical necessities of the people that we're taking on said trip, if applicable. It is not uncommon and it is highly recommended that for any expeditionary or out into the wilderness sort of event, which is kind of the entire theme of our entire podcast, you have some some better than baseline information or I'll call it better than the medic alert bracelet when it turns out Billy quit breathing set of information around your patients. This is often collected by expedition planning folks via email or, or other means. They often include questions around general health problems. Why am I struggling so bad? Uh, common maintenance medications, uh, confirming that your the individuals on the, the trip understand that they need to be bringing enough of their maintenance medication. They need to get prescriptions early if possible. If there's other alternatives you may need to plan for, having that information up front is important. You want to understand if your patients have allergies, right? Here's a big one that comes up a lot, not the allergies so much, but patients often, there is a subset of the population that believes they do not have a cardiac condition because they take medication for their cardiac condition. And so the condition is, quote, solved. I cannot tell you the number of events I've gone to or or events I've supported where you ask people, do you have a cardiac history? Do you, have you been diagnosed with anything? And they say, no, 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 I'm, I'm. I'm all fixed. I'm good. And then you look at their, their maintenance medications. You're like, dude, there's metropolol on your list of meds. Like, come on, brother. Like, what's this for? Is, I mean, it nothing. Could be for it's controlled, stuff, but it's probably for cardiac. But, you know, identifying the folks in your expeditionary party that may have had a history of cardiac problems is really useful. You can plan appropriately. 
It goes without saying, but the betas, or otherwise known as the sugars, if you have folks in the, the group that are diabetic, it's good to know that ahead of time. Also, it's useful information to understand what they use, if anything, to manage their diabetes, or whether it's just via diet, especially if it's if they're taking medications, oftentimes these sorts of trips result in more exertion than folks would normally expect. And you, It is not uncommon to have diabetic folks that end up running into what I'll call low-level problems with sugar management because they're burning more calories and more sugar than they typically do in an average day. Also, you know, physical limitations. If it turns out Tim has a, a peg leg, not peg leg, what do they call it? <laughs> a prosthetic. A prosthetic. Right? <laughs> um, I don't think they've been peg legs since like, 1876, man. That's true. That's very true. Or, you know, maybe he's rocking some like wooden teeth and he needs porridge and stuff at night. Who knows? But <laughs> poor Tim, he's in a bad way. But if there are physical limitations, right? If you have if you have folks that have limitations, it's good to know that ahead of time. The obvious one that comes up a lot is folks that that might use an inhaler. Exercise-induced respiratory problems are actually a relatively common thing that people don't really think about it until it turns out they're having a problem. So that is certainly something that, that you should discuss or put into your questionnaire if you're the one writing it. It is important to note, and this is a general statement, so each expedition is going to have a different level of concern, but you're not replacing their GP, right? What you're really looking for is details needed to provide good support in the environment you're going to be in for the period of time for the most common things that could happen for people that have a pre-existing condition. You are not taking the place of their general provider, but it may not be a horrible idea to get a hold of some records if they have some unique bespoke condition that you've not heard of before. And that goes without saying, but all of this requires your participants to be open and honest, right? So <laughs> it's funny, but sometimes a little bit of professionalism or a little bit of honesty goes a long way with people. If you build a relationship with the individuals you're asking to provide you information and they trust you, they're going to be much more forthcoming about some benign healthcare things. They may not uh, they may not want everyone to know. So I know this goes without saying, but it happens more often than you'd think. Respect your patient rights as well. And you don't have to share it with everybody, but you need to ask them to be honest and trust you with the information. Oh, here's another one on the list I kind of forgot about. Vaccinations and prophylaxis. Right? Have they been? Are they up to date on their vaccines? Have they taken their prophylactic medications if necessary? A lot of that includes trips outside of the U.S. Various diseases require certain prophylactic medications or disease processes. Sometimes, make sure that you're staying on top of that if you're responsible to make sure everyone is taken care of. Right? These are things that are important and should be handled. You don't want to leave this stuff to chance, so to speak. Waivers can also be included, but generally you want to keep the medical information segmented in some way, manner, shape, or form from any other, you know, legalese and paperwork and all of those things because it is protected information and you want to make sure that you're uh, you're respecting their privacy. Any thoughts from you, Sean? Anything I missed? No, yeah, no, I think that pretty well covers it. I think the big one, though, like just waiver-wise is that one's going to vary significantly from whoever you're supporting agency to agency, right? So some people will have a very generic waiver that you can't hold any of us responsible for anything that happens out here because this is dangerous for whatever reason. Or you might have a, 
hey, look, we generally don't accept people that have certain cardiac conditions, but you're giving us, giving us enough money. So sign this waiver saying that if you die of this condition, then your family won't sue us, right? Get into the world of, of lawyers and legal stuff, and you'll find that most of these waivers don't hold up in court regardless. Yeah. It, a lot of times they're a deterrent. It, it is what it is. But you know, don't generally get too wrapped up in the waiver piece as, as far as being part of the medical support team. If you have concerns about somebody and whoever your in-charge person is says, no, we're going to still bring Bob along, then it's like, okay, cool. Please just provide that in writing to me. Just even if it's an email, just to kind of cover you saying, hey, I've identified that there's a medical concern with bringing this guy for this event. You've said we're still bringing him. Just give me that formally and we'll call it a day. Mm -hmm. But I think you covered the rest of it. You know, just know who you're taking out there as best you can. Because, yeah, I mean, especially if you're traveling and you're trying to procure drugs, like, am I going to be able to buy a bunch of insulin for some people? No, I'm probably not going to bring insulin. That's going to be on that individual to make sure they have a significant supply to cover the planned duration. And as Mike has mentioned before, the potential overages in days because of travel, emergencies, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, we simply, even if you're supporting a large expedition kind of thing, there's still cube and weight restrictions on what can be brought. And you can't just be bringing all the meds just because somebody may mess something up. Some of this has to be put back on individual responsibility as well. So anyway, all right. So I think the last thing we're going to talk about in this section is going to be, you're going to want to identify and prepare any training that might be provided to the various participants, whether that's other support staff to guided clients, whatever that might be. If you were asked to provide training, you have to figure out what it is they want you to teach people and then develop a program to do that. Very often, the medical team is, is given the, the safety piece of it. And again, that kind of ties back all into your environmental stuff, your local hazards, wildlife, et cetera. If there's specific, like you're dealing with ropes and other technical access means, that should probably be briefed by somebody else unless you have someone who is an expert in that field that can brief that out appropriately. But we're talking general safety. A lot of it is, again, environmental related. Uh, second one is hygiene pieces, especially if you are, well, I, these days, people finally got the message after COVID that washing your hands is a good thing. So you need to discuss hygiene, especially if you're working in for this podcast, where we're assuming you're going to be in some sort of wilderness or austere environment, right? Hygiene is going to become important, right? Never shit where you eat, wash your hands. If you're not sure, wash them again whether you're using hand sanitizer, soap and water, or other disinfectant agents, make sure everybody understands that plan. Hygiene is also the, hey, if you got to go to the bathroom, it's done over there. Yes, even in the dark, you have to walk all the way over there to do your work. Mm -hmm. And this is how you dispose of any human waste that is developed and procured and deposited. I don't think we procure human waste. That would be kind of weird. I mean, Somebody you might. Us. I'm out. That's not my I job. don't. But, but yeah, so I deposit. I deposit. Yeah. Again, local hazards, I think we've talked about this enough. You know, you might want to brief them up on the diseases, mosquitoes, the importance of, you know, again, if you're one of these environments where some of these crazy tropical diseases are out there, like chikungunya, which I just like saying that one because it sounds cool. Dengue. I have no malaria. idea what that is. <laughs> I got some courses you can take. All right, um, buddy. Make sure they're aware of it. Let them know that, hey, sleeping under the mosquito net, I know it makes it a little hotter at night because you cut down on the breeze and whatever, but this could be something that saves you from getting very, very sick and ill. So make sure they understand these things. And then if you're asked to provide any sort of like general first aid training for everybody, right? 
perhaps you're the only medic. Maybe it's you and maybe one other person. Maybe you got to bring somebody else along and they're an EMT. Well, at that point, depending on what your type of operation you're supporting, you may want to train up some of the other folks in some basic first aid skills or in some of those things that you might need help with if you know you get mm-hmm. that worst case call. Make sure that you guys know what CPR is and how to do good CPR and basic fundamentals, right? But that, again, that's very much going to depend on where you're going, what you're doing, who exactly the target audience is, et cetera. So but those are just some, some general things that you may or may not be asked to provide some level of training on. And I think that's pretty much it as far as what we want to talk about today on some of this just general mission planning. Again, yeah, as we mentioned in the beginning, this is just a general sort of template and approach. There are a lot of things out there in our social media. I'll put a link to a couple of resources that I personally really like when it comes to references for this type of planning. I think some of the key points, know your mission, right? You got to know what you're going to go out there to support. What do you need to support it? And then you just start developing your initial plan. And uh, for those of us who've ever been involved in the world of planning, I know Mike has done a lot of incident command type SAR and EMS response planning, right? Plans change. Don't freak out. Just move on. Accept it, right? Just know your plan is going to change, right? It's going to be, you might have been told, you get to bring six Pelican cases of this size and two weeks out, you're cut down to three of those. Then you got to like reprioritize your stuff. Don't flip out. If there is a legit concern, like you're going to drop too much, what you believe critical information, make that case. But at the end of the day, if you can do your analysis and go, eh, all right, we might be able to get this in three. We'll see what we can do. And you can make it happen. Make it happen. Right. Don't lose your lose your mind over it. It's just it's the nature. It's of It's not worth it. It'll be fine. Yeah. And, and some organizations are much more organized when it comes to their planning than others. Some places. I've known a a couple of guys that support a certain organization and they are very much a fly by night. Like they do this regularly enough. You'd think they'd have it figured out by now. Not so much. Do they run that deep sea expedition company that uses (laughs) a game controller? (laughs) Oh, wait, my bad. The use of a game controller does not phase me, right? I mean, no, we have 20 something drone pilots using game controllers to fly drones for all kinds of stuff, right? So using a game controller to steer and pilot something is not unusual, or I find all that obnoxious. It's the rest of the things that went into that. But anyway. <laughs> it's all the other stuff. Yeah. All right. So I think the next episode will be on the more detailed, the medical response plan, which generally provides the, if something happens, now this is what we're going to do piece. So if you're looking for that, not this episode, and which you've already listened to it, so you should figure that out by now. Yeah, but, uh, seriously. Tune in for the next one and you'll get a piece of that. And with that, Mike, what else you got? Anything else for the wrap up? That's it. I just want to remind everybody, I should probably make a disclaimer and put it at the beginning of the podcast. Maybe I'll do that one of these days. These are our opinions. These are not the opinions of our employers or any other agencies we're affiliated with. And uh, if you don't like our advice, then you don't have to listen. So there. Well, you can can listen. You just don't have to follow it. I appreciate the listening, though. Yeah, keep listening. Or just follow us and don't listen. That's fine, too. (laughs) We appreciate the listening. I appreciate yeah. the listening. We like the listening, especially validate my existence. Someone, please. Yeah, Thank you. he needs it. All right. Talk to you all later. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS.
Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.